Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. From 2011 to 2013, I was enrolled in a PhD program in education that yielded a little bit of research, a few book reviews, a teaching practitioner article, and numerous conference presentations. At the time, I felt I was en route to the professoriate, but then my interest waned other opportunities arose and I traveled a different path within secondary education, which led to the creation of this podcast and the examination of the field of religious studies. On this show, I mostly talk to professors, whether tenure track, non-tenure track, or adjunct, or graduate students, but I have a deep fascination with people whose work seemed as if it was going to take them down one path and it wound up taking them down another in a way that is similar to what happened to me. This episode is about what happens after pursuing a PhD in religious studies only to wind up traveling a different path and my guest is Dr. Shannon Trosper Shorey. Dr. Shannon Trosper-Shorey is a scholar, writer, and researcher in the tech industry. She is an expert in science and technology studies, American religious history, and new religious movements. After leaving higher education, she began working in the private sector and is focused on emerging and cloud technologies. You can follow her work on Twitter at S-T-S-C-H-O-R-E-Y. That's on Twitter at S.T. Shorey. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on Beyond Higher Education with Dr. Shannon Trosper Shorey. Dr. Shannon Trosper Shorey, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks. I'm so delighted to have you here. Can you just go ahead and spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, so we know kind of who you are and what you do? Um, so I am an ex-academic. I finished my dissertation at UNC Chapel Hill in 2017, working at the intersection of religious studies and technology studies. And while I was finishing my dissertation, I actually took a job at Red Hat, 
which is an open source software company. And I currently work there mostly as a developmental editor. So using the skills that I learned during the PhD, how to read critically, how to think through really ambiguous arguments, how to find cohesion amongst really sort of differing voices and helping especially uh, some of the engineering arms over there think through some of their messaging. Mm, wonderful. I, I want to know more about your profession here in a little bit, but I also want to know a little bit about your academic background. I love that you work in the intersection of science, technology, religious history, new religious movements are among some of your experiences that I found out. Yeah. And I want to know why you came to be interested in those things. What grabbed your attention originally about religion, technology, science? What's kind of the backstory there? Uh, such a great question. Thank you for asking that. So I grew up in um, Mesa, Arizona, and I was surrounded, my friend group was kind of a mixture of kind of hardcore atheists mm -hmm. and really into, you know, like uh, we've talked in the past about bad religion, mm -hmm. like uh, Greg Graffin teaches about atheism, um, I think at Columbia University, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he's uh, at UCLA right now. Is he? Right. Yeah. He's, something, he's got quite the life. It's, it's pretty interesting. Oh, seriously. He's amazing. He's one of my, you know, kind of like thinker heroes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so I was in that friend group, but then I also had Mormon friends. Um, and I also had evangelical friends. And so I had kind of this mixture of friends who identified in different religious ways common to that area, right? It was kind of a homogenous little area um, in Arizona. But the thing that got me was that the evangelicals and the Mormons, of which I am neither, were constantly calling each other the cult, right? Mm. And there was a lot of like, especially in middle school, there was a lot of like, you have to convert, like, we need you to convert to this one, or we can't be friends, or like, you have to convert to that one. Or we... And so I was really curious about like, well, what was the scientific truth? You know, like, which one was the real Christianity? Mm. and Which one wasn't? And it was kind of an intellectual exercise um, for me about like, I can solve this problem impartially because, you know, all the hubris of being 17. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's that question hung with me and I went to my undergrad and the first sort of one of the very first classes I took was a world religions class. And it was a great class. It was at NAU. The faculty were very charming. Um, they really knew their stuff. But what I sort of saw was that some traditions were treated extremely respectfully and others were treated as jokes. And that's mm. not that these professors were intentionally doing that, but they would say like, oh, well, of course, Mormonism is a real religion. And like, you should respect that. And of course, Buddhism is a real religion. And like, you should respect that. And me, not attached to either of those, I'm, I'm like, cool. Yeah. Like humanity, like, let's, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, let's take this respectful argument. But then we got to the new religious movement section and it would be like, well, you know, Church of Satan is obviously a joke. Like, right. why do we need to spend time on that? And I was like, well, but if I don't believe in this one or this one, then like, what's the difference here? You know, like for me at 19 or whatever, I couldn't grok why some traditions presented in this class were presented like so lovely and others were really dismissed out of hand, especially like for me still operating in this belief centric definition. Mm -hmm. right? I was like, well, if I don't believe in Satan, why is that one any different than if I don't believe in Buddha? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so that started me on this track of studying new religious movements. 
Um, I did that sort of in an undergrad. My master's at Boulder was really focused on that. And while I was at Boulder, um, I started studying Scientology <clears throat> and how they, you know, think about the tax code. And I was really interested in like these definitions of who counts as legitimate and when and how that's a changing discussion, right? Like mm -hmm. it's not a static thing. But pretty soon studying Scientology, I ran into Anonymous, the hacker group, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because one, one of Anonymous's earliest, biggest projects is um, Project Chinology, which is really an effort to take down Scientology. And then I sort of kept going on that rabbit hole and I found Scientologists who were trying to reform their own tradition through using the language of open source. And I kind of just got into this web of interest where I was like, well, why does Scientology have such a hard time online? I mean, like, they obviously have bad, mm -hmm. <laughs> they have a, you know, they have a sordid history, they have bad press. Um, but some of their principles of operating as a secret organization really are antithetical to some of the things that we hold to be the most true about the internet or that we did, you know, like the internet is changing. The internet today is not the internet that I grew up with. You right. know, you have, we've talked about having kids and I like think about trying to help my son navigate his form of the internet when he gets there. I'm like, I don't even know how. <laughs> it's so overwhelming. I think about this all the time. Right, right. Yeah. And so I was really interested in like, well, what are the what are the ideological commitments that we make when we say like we're really into the internet, you know? And for me, that was really about open source. And so like this open coding and this idea that like the internet has all this information that you could put on it, this real like freedom of information versus secretive religion mm -hmm. got me on this path to to ask even more questions about, you know how do technology and religion interrelate and that was a conversation i didn't see a whole lot of people happening so i just kind of kind of kept going down that rabbit hole nice where did you go into the phd program what was like your motivation following that into the phd program because you must have had a pretty good sense of where you were going in order to pursue the phd program i would imagine yeah, so I um, I applied to UNC Chapel Hill to work with uh, Randall Stiers in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, he has that gorgeous book, Making Magic, right? That's all about how magic and science are categories worked out in society. They're not these stable, transhistorical, you know, transcultural things. And I really wanted somebody like that to help me think through religion and technology in a way that was going to um, be more intertwined, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I didn't want to go somewhere where the really common thing when I was starting my program was uh, you could go study media and religion. So you could look at like religious apps, like, you know, um, how are applications on the iPhone changing religious practice? And that question interested me, but not as much as like, what happens if somebody confesses on a on a religious app and where does that data go does that mm. <laughs> does that data get policed somewhere does it does it become at so i was interested like kind of a step under content and a little bit more about form and unc seemed like the place to do that incredible 
so you went through this dissertation process, but you know, in our emails back and forth over the last couple of weeks, you mentioned how you did jump ship to leave the academic and university system after the, the dissertation. And I'm wondering a little bit about that choice, because as somebody who quit a PhD program myself right before comprehensive exams, um, I'm wondering how your story and my story might overlap a little bit and what led to that process of jumping ship and then how you've done since then. Yeah, and I would actually really love to hear your story in detail because I feel like in general, the folks who leave, it can be really isolating, yeah. <laughs> right? And so uh, I'm always looking for conversation partners for that. So what happened with me was um, I started writing my dissertation. I had a big chunk of my dissertation was thinking about open source software. Mm-hmm. And the sort of ideological and philosophical commitments that open source communities were upholding. And Red Hat is probably the most famous open source company. It's really hard for companies to do what Red Hat is doing in terms of like completely open sourcing their products. Mm -hmm. I knew of Red Hat. I knew that it was downtown. Um, I had a friend who worked there. Uh, who posted that they were having a job and I was so isolated Mm. (laughs) like I was not teaching I had this great year where I was on a fellowship where I could write I was like three months in feeling very it wasn't as much a um I feel like in the university system we are overthinkers, and Mm. so we can like sit down with pros and cons and like really think out and academic jobs take like entire binders you know of materials yeah and uh, corporate jobs do not. Mm-hmm. They take a cover letter and a resume. And I just applied thinking, well, I wonder how that works. And I wonder how it is taking these ideological commitments and putting them like at the heart of capital, right? Like, like yeah. what does it mean to be an open source corporation? So I applied. I got an interview. It, the whole application process took four months. I Every single step of the way, I didn't think I was going to get in. But the team I met was really wonderful. They're almost like a good chunk of them are ex-academics. Um, so I had like an ideological community right at the bat. They were creative people, copywriters, folks who made movies um, as their hobby. And I kind of found like, you know, a group of people who I thought were really charming to work with in the context of some some new challenge for me, like watching how these ideological commitments would work in a different system. And at the time I thought, well, you know, it'll be well-paid field work and I can Mm -hmm. only change my mind later. Like I was looking at the job market. I never went on the job market, Mm. but you know, you hear the story. Oh (laughs) yeah. I was not excited to go on the job market and, and that's kind of how I ended up there. It was kind of like a whimsical path that has really worked out. So my my situation is kind of similar where I was about to do comprehensive exams and I had some publications and tons of like conference presentations under my belt and things were going fine. But inside I was so, uh, I had so much discontent because every time I would read a different book in my field, I'd be like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever read. And I would be like, hey, I would say to my advisor, hey, what about this for my dissertation? And, and he, it got really exhausting yeah. um, for him because I wanted to be like 
I didn't want to really focus on anything. So I was like, oh, life is short. I want to do this and this and this and this. And I was bouncing all over the place and I had no focus. And then an opportunity came up to teach 10th grade English and world religions at a brand new high school. And I essentially decided in a single second, oh, I'm going to go do that instead. Bye. And I like, without really even thinking about it in too much depth, I just packed up my office at the, at the university and went to my classroom, unpacked all my stuff in the new classroom. And that was that. And life moved on. You know what I mean? And like, I never even for a single second thought about going back, but the world religions aspect of it led me into doing this kind of work. And so you never know what those new opportunities are going to present. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I wish, um, it's interesting to hear, to hear that we have such a similar story in terms of like not thinking about it too much, because I feel like that's kind of rare, right? Like there are these tortured decisions at at the AR and like in these university, um, programs where they're like all to academia and I was like that the whole way that we phrase that is so terrible because you're talking about your backup you know like alternative academia like for people who are really good at thinking about centers and peripheries (laughs) you know like yeah yeah the entire way the um academic structure imagines what jobs count is pretty disappointing um and I also like you know, I, I had kind of kept one foot in one foot out. I still love the university system. I feel like a lot of people who leave and are really vocal on Twitter, like hate, hate what the university system did. And, and we all know all those critiques, right? Sure. Like lack of financial support, lack of mental support, lack of research support. Like yeah. it's, it's designed in a way that's really tough. And those criticisms are really fair, but I had a hard time finding people who really liked it and left anyway. And like, where's your community? I'm interested to hear more about how you've navigated that. I mean, it's just been a tremendous opportunity for me. I never regretted it. But whenever I am on campuses, like if I'm like walking through a college campus, um, I really love that atmosphere. And interestingly, I actually do work full time for a university right now, but I teach in a virtual high school that is housed at a university. So I'm actually a university employee. So after teaching for several years in like a normal brick and mortar high school, I've sort of jumped ship from that and gone sort of back to the university system, but I'm still Mm -hmm. a high school teacher. So it's a really strange uh, little universe that I have kind of carved out for myself, you know? Yeah. Well, and how does, how have you found, because I know that I definitely feel like I use the skill sets from my PhD every single day. Oh, definitely. And so I'm curious to hear, like, you talk about that too, because I feel like a lot of people just focus on research. Yeah. And they're like, well, what else could I do? I'm like, you could do so many things. Oh my gosh. So (laughs) the, the skills that I, that I got in the university system of like reading deeply, thinking critically, uh, asking good questions. That is exactly what I try to do on this particular show. And I mean, I've been doing this show now for over four years, which is longer than it takes to get a PhD. So in a way, I almost feel like I've been pursuing that PhD all the time through having conversations with people such as yourself and all of the other hundreds of guests that I've had on the show. 
So that process for me has never stopped, even though it's in a totally different setting and I am totally in control of my own experience on this show. Like I, I go and talk to the people that I want to talk to. I make invitations that are about topics that I want to talk about. So in a way, I feel like I'm like cultivating my own continuing education. It's just that I'm never going to get a degree for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, well, I love that. I love that too. I mean, like all those autonomy agency, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know these are... I do think that there's like some, some professionalism about like being in charge of your own career path and, and where does meaning come from? You know, that is, that is a really hard conversation that I think academics don't have enough. And it was one of the things that really stood out to me when I switched from the university system to Red Hat, because I had been surrounded by people in the university system who just worked all the time, or at least they say that they work all the time, right? It's a, whether you do or you don't, the social capital of saying how much you're working is really important. And all of your meaning then comes from the job and you're pushed to, you know, you're pushed to really integrate. (laughs) It's kind of the language that I've heard, you know, it's like, it becomes who you are. It's your primary identity. It's where you get all your meaning and it's fulfilling work. Like, don't get me wrong. I loved all of that. But what was surprising to me is watching academics who really for very, I'm going to use Christian language of like treat their job as a calling. Mm -hmm. That's not quite the right language, but that's kind of how I always saw it. It's so easy to work and work and work and get those little stickers of achievement. And like that mechanism works across all those things. Um, And switching a career like that gave me perspective on that earlier. And I feel like I'm actually better able to say like here are the parts of the job that give me meaning and also I'm going to go home and talk to my kid (laughs) and also and that not that that's not possible within the university system but I feel like less people talk about it you know um and I think that it's getting harder to achieve with each passing year like it feels like if I if I if my sense of the system is at all accurate. I feel like it's becoming more steamrolling instead of less. And, you know, that's something that, that I has made me never really regret the path that I chose instead, because, you know, as somebody who still works for like the the university system, like, but is working with high school students in like a virtual high school setting. Like I write curriculum, Mm -hmm. I grade student work every day. I answer their emails. I get on video calls with them if they need to talk about their assignments. But like my life is much, much gentler now than when I was either in a PhD program on like a sort of like a professor-ish track or in the, the, you know, in-person high school, which is like full of 1500 students every single day. So like my life has become, I've had these very jarring, very busy experiences in those two styles of institutions. And now the one that I'm in, it's very gentle and I'm seeing like a brand new way of living that I've never really had before because it was always so fast paced. So like I have, uh, I, I see what I have now and the pros and cons of it. And then I also think about those past experiences too, a whole lot. I think about that a ton, you know? Yeah. I, you know, so when I first, um, switched careers, there's this lovely, uh, woman who was working at Duke university press. She'd been there a long time and she was getting ready to tire. And I, I, I went through, 
you know, I chose to leave. I didn't ever go on the job market, but I still went through a lot of complicated feelings about like what that meant and, and had my time been wasted, you know, doing the PhD. And she just very gently said to me, there are so many ways to find meaning, mm-hmm. you know? And I, and I think that it's very easy to, to collapse that into just your job and then to think about some jobs as more than jobs. Um, but I wanted to revisit something that you said earlier because it really resonated with me about asking good questions. I yeah. feel like such a superpower academics have the, the um, ability to ask really good questions, but also the courage to say, what does that mean? Like it's a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you use that at your, at your current job a lot? Do you find yourself doing that regularly? I do. I use it several times a day almost every day. And it has opened so many doors for me because what I have learned is that with a PhD or grad school or just being, you know, in a life of reading, you know, cultivating a life of reading and a life of talking to people like you have, all those things, what they do is they teach you how much you don't know. Oh yeah. And you become like more comfortable in that, you know, sea of ambiguity. Yeah. And I think there's a real power to that. Like sometimes I'm the only person in the room that is unafraid to say, what does that mean? Because I'm not afraid to look stupid because I know how much I don't know, you know, yeah. where people who I think are, are younger or haven't been exposed to that really humbling experience of like, yes. just, you know, every single book teaching that you like how much you don't know. I think that they feel like that's a harder question to ask. Yeah, like I, I have, I have vivid memories of being at conferences for like education, and people were saying words like ontology and stuff like that. <laughs> and I have these vivid memories of like leaning over to the person next to me and saying, "I have no idea what this person is talking about." And it was almost like a big game for me for uh, like the second half, the second year that I was in the PhD program, like the first year I wanted to look really smart and really engaged. And the second year I was like, I don't know what this person's talking about. And (laughs) so it just, my, my brain just shifted in the second year of the program to where I felt like a complete, uh, idiot all the time because I didn't really understand what these people were talking about, but I also felt a lot more comfortable of realizing that I didn't know what they were talking about and kind of making a joke out of it. You know what I mean? And so it really cracks me up. And I often joke with my friends, like, yeah, the older I get, the 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 kind of the dumber I feel. Like with each passing year, like I'm gonna be 38 soon. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm dumber than ever. And I just kind of like to turn it into a humorous thing because uh there's so much to learn. And that's kind of like why I love doing this, because like it makes me see more that I don't know instead of being like, Oh, I'm sure that I know more. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And I think that, (laughs) I think that it, it really, I mean, I think it's been one of the primary drivers of my own career growth at Red Hat because it keeps you curious, Yeah. right? It helps other people refine their ideas. It doesn't have to be a gotcha question, right? but, but oftentimes, so like jargon within the university system is the same as jargon outside of it and jargon really is a shorthand for experts talking to other experts and so you know sometimes i'm around these engineers who are who are speaking a language that i frankly <laughs> you know mm-hmm. don't really understand and just by saying like, what do you mean by that gives them an opportunity to also slow down and like think about 
is that actually what they mean or concrete? And that's a, that is such a good skill that I wish more people really embraced, you know? Well, yeah. And that's like, th- this goes so far beyond just talking about like being in the field of religious studies. Do you know what I mean? Like good communication skills are so unbelievably important. And the way that we talk to each other and being able to understand like, Hey, it's totally fine to ask people follow-up questions and to have a curious mind. And even if you feel like, Hey, I'm an intelligent person, I should understand what this person is talking about, but also being comfortable enough to say, I don't understand what this means. I mean, that is just a life skill that is applicable to literally every single person in our society. Yeah. And if you keep it with that, if you anchor it in that open curiosity, I think you get so many partners, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's another skill. Like the best parts of academia for me were the reading and the writing groups that like were cultivated, you know, like I'm in one with, um, Brooke right now. Yeah. She, she always asks the exact right gentle question, which is not you know, it's not sugar-coated, it's usually blunt, but it's, but it's always in a partnership. And so, you know, like, what do you mean by that? Like, let's go back and look at your argument and tease out, you know, what's the strongest thing you want to say, because stuff is ambiguous and complicated, and this is a process. And I feel like because I've lived that life so much, it's easier to be that sort of intellectual partner for folks who are working on really hard problems and can't communicate them. And then also might get defensive if one of their peers said, you know, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Because like, we're unafraid of, I mean, that being unafraid of ambiguity is another superpower. Like I am just never afraid of not really knowing what I'm doing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I kind of assume other people don't either. And that we're going to work it out. You know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to be fine. We're going to get through the process and it's going to clear up, you know, And you really couldn't ask for a better writing group partner than uh, Brooke Walensky Lanford. I mean, her writing and editing skills, like she's absolutely stellar. So, I mean, you really do have a fantastic partner there who is going to ask you those hard questions from an editor's and writer's point of view. Um, So strong. So let's talk about that a little more. Um, So Shannon, you've gone from this, you know, academic trajectory, this dissertation path that could have led to like a professorship or whatever in higher education. And you went a different route, but you also have joined up with this fabulous sacred rights, 2021 cohort. And I'm talking to everybody and your story is is kind of an outlier as far as I can tell um, in this, in this cohort, which makes you a really fascinating person to talk to because you are outside of the institution. uh, But you joined up with the sacred rights, which is so academic in nature. And I'm wondering if you can tell me why you have joined up with sacred rights and what this experience is doing for you, um, even though you're outside of academia at this point. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that. It's a wonderful, complicated <laughs> sure. wonderful question. Um, uh, I'm First off, I'm just a huge fan of sacred rights. I've been watching them since they came out. I'm a huge fan of Megan and Liz. I think that they are really boosting um, recognizing different skill sets that academics have that don't always get recognized as like real valuable skill sets that are widely recognized outside of the university system. And so I, I just 
really wanted to apply and um, see if I could get in and get their training firsthand, you know, see how they were thinking about um, social media and how they were thinking about op-eds. Um, and then the other part of that question, what am I kind of doing personally with it? I am probably not doing public scholarship, but you know, I think that the way that public scholarship is configured right now, or at least as, as much as I can understand it, is really about folks who are in classical teaching and research positions who are trying to think about how to get a broader audience for the work that they're already doing. Mm -hmm. And that's so valuable and we need it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not my story, right? Like I'm not in a classical teaching or research position. Um, I'm in a nine to five where I do a lot of really fun developmental editing work that I then can't talk about in a different context because either there's an NDA on it. I work with emerging technology quite a lot. So like, you know, I know things that I shouldn't be saying, <laughs> or there's that kind of classical um, journalist integrity problem, right? So if I talk about any sort of technology, which is my wheelhouse that Red Hat is related to, it's a really complicated relationship. And like, and I don't want to speak for Red Hat. Mm -hmm. I want to be autonomous from Red Hat. Um, you know, and, and the way that like content marketing works now is that, uh, you know, it would be assumed that I always speak for Red Hat. So it's been something, it's been sort of complicated trying to figure out where I land. And I think I've landed in this um, almost freelance situation. Like, you know, what are the intellectual questions that I can pick up and write about um, from my perspective as somebody who has been trained by the university system, but doesn't have a classical research project. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does, sure. Well, and I know that I, I've read some of your work. I read uh, an article that you wrote on religion dispatches called, Are We Living in a Simulation? So clearly mm -hmm. you're still interested in writing and doing things for the general public. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, like what maybe some goals or some like hypotheses yeah. you have for some of your public scholarship in the future, even though you're outside of it, you still seem to be kind of interested in it as well. And I want to poke on you a little bit for that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a, that's a good way to rephrase it so my mind wraps around it. So I think what I'm interested in doing is more um, playful nonfiction, I would call it, yeah. rather than classical public scholarship. So by playful nonfiction, I mean you know, using all the skills and tool sets and critical thinking that I have fostered within the academy and applying it to all sorts of things. Um, so the religion dispatches um, movie review. Right now I'm pitching an article to Rue Morgue, which is a horror magazine <laughs> mm -hmm. on uh, snuff films and what they tell us about capitalism. So that, that has nothing to do with religion, but it is, you know, like being curious about other things in the world and knowing that I have these skill sets to write short essays about them. And I'm really just trying to be in a playful space, recognizing that as good as it is to like be the expert writing about the thing you're the expert in, I think that there's also space to be playful and write broadly, but be transparent about that role. Mm. Right. So like not, getting out of your lane and like claiming, 
you know, so the Afghanistan crisis has just happened and there's lots of people or COVID, right? Like there's lots of people who are really smart, who are writing about vaccines, who are not epidemiologists, like maybe not that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that causes some real harm. But I think that there is room for like, if you're, you know, a science and technology studies person or you're a religious studies person for writing about COVID-19 and vaccines from your own perspective. And I'm trying to embrace that a little bit more. Like, what are the areas I can play in? Um, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, you know, Shannon, I'm wondering if you can say where people can find you if they want to know a little bit more about your work. I mentioned an article that you did on religion dispatches. So you have stuff out there and I know that you have like public commentary on Twitter and things like that. So do you want to direct people's attention in any particular directions? Yeah. Um, can I mention, and I don't know if this is the right place to do it, but I am working on a, um, children's book, like just for playful. So this is, this is not really like a, it's not out there, but in terms totally. of, in terms of people who are looking for playful alternatives, because I feel like that's something that I wanted to talk about. If you're, if you're in the Academy or you've, you're, you're around the Academy and you want to do these sorts of things, but you don't have a research background, I just like really encourage you to play. And one of the things I've been doing, my son is two. So we read these picture books all day long. Um, these rhyming picture books. And yeah. And now with a friend, I've uh, written and we're getting illustrated a like little rhyming picture book about uh, Foucault's Panopticon. And it's just silly, you know, but like that's another example of like stuff I want to do that is, you know, it's for people who are interested in Foucault, who are interested in surveillance, who have little kids. It's introducing concepts in a playful way that is not like serious scholarship and I think that there's room for that and I wish I wish more academics would do stuff that is light or um not that they don't have to feel so chained to the traditional if you're not in the tenure track you know don't feel so chained by the traditional tenure track modes of production I guess is what I would say I love it. Well, where can people find you online if they want to uh, follow along on your journey? Yeah. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at stshory. Um, and I think that that's pretty much the main place you can find me. I've got a website, shantrospershory.com. Um, you can contact me through either of those places. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Shannon Trosper Shorey, thank you so much for joining me on Classical Ideas. This has been a nice little uh, you know, foray outside of, you know, the norm of what I do on this show. So this has been like a refreshing and invigorating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me to have this today. You're so kind. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.